Tonight we are beginning in 1 Corinthians, and uh, so we are obviously in chapter 1. So find 1 Corinthians in your Bible, and uh, we will read the first nine verses. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that uh, we can learn from every book of the New Testament, that we can uh, learn uh, in unique ways because each book has a unique emphasis and Lord, we pray as we begin the study of 1 Corinthians tonight that you would help us to uh, to really pick up some uh, instruction and some needed application for our day and time. This book is very relevant for the day in which we live. There's so much worldliness and even worldliness in the church. And so, Lord, we uh, we can learn from this book. And, Lord, we pray tonight once again that our hearts would be set on you, that we would be attentive, that we would be um, active in listening, and that we would not only hear your word, that we would heed it, and that we would uh, have the desire to be all that you instruct us to be. Lord, help us to be the kind of church that is separate from the world, the kind of church that is um, holy and uh, that, that we might live as saints in this dark world in which we live. So, Lord, we just pray to help us uh, as we go through this study and encourage us tonight in the Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I sometimes think that we ought to introduce a bill into Congress changing our national symbol from the eagle to the buffalo. Because we as Americans are often more like buffalo than eagles. The eagle is a powerful creature that flies alone, soaring with authority and majestic singleness, rising above the world below. On the other hand, the buffalo is never alone. He always travels with the rest of the herd. Whatever all the other buffalo are doing, that's what he does. 
the letters to the Corinthians were letters that were written to a church that had conformed to the world. Rather than being willing to separate themselves from their culture, the Corinthian Christians allowed their pagan culture to overtake them. They were squeezed into the mold of the world around them and the worldly values and practices of their society began to dictate their attitudes and their behavior. And so tonight, we're going to begin a study of God's letter to a worldly church. But before we start getting too hard on the Corinthians, we had better take note of how often we are just like them. How often do we, as modern American Christians, become fearful of being called strange or peculiar, and therefore begin to take on that buffalo mentality of following the crowd and becoming just like the world around us? That's why a study of the letter to the Corinthians is so important for us as believers. It serves as a reminder that we are to be different from the world and that we're not to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold. Paul said in Romans 12:2, "Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable." And perfect. Unfortunately, the church at Corinth was indeed conformed to the world. One commentator writes Imagine a church racked by divisions. Powerful leaders promote themselves against each other, each with his band of loyal followers. One of them is having an affair with his stepmother. And instead of disciplining him, many in the church boast of his freedom in Christ to behave in such a way. Believers sue each other in secular courts. Some like to visit prostitutes. As a backlash against this rampant immorality, another faction in the church is promoting celibacy. Complete sexual abstinence for all believers as the Christian ideal. Still other debates rage about how decisively new Christians should break from their pagan past. Disagreement about men's and women's roles in the church add to the confusion. As if all this were not enough, alleged prophecies. And speaking in tongues occur regularly, but not always in a constructive fashion. A significant number of these immature Christians do not even believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. How would you like to attend a church like that? This is the kind of church that Paul is addressing in this letter. And even in modern times... We might not find all of these problems in one single church, 
But all of these, these things are very relevant because all of these things are still being experienced by various churches, even in our time. So we can learn valuable lessons for the church today from their negative example. We can learn some critical things to avoid and some valuable lessons on how to deal with these kinds of things. Now, as I'm sure you know, there are all kinds of pitfalls into which churches can fall into. And this book gives us some of the most common ones. We can learn from this book how to avoid these pitfalls. And my plan as I go through this book is to go through it very, very carefully. And uh, the way I estimate this, we should be finishing up about the time Jesus comes. Just kidding. Maybe. Now, the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians forms the introduction to it. But needless to say, we won't get nearly that far tonight. And I want to begin by giving some background for this book before we move into the text itself. The story of the Corinthian church really begins in the book of Acts, chapter 18. So turn with me to Acts 18. Acts 18. In Acts 18, we are told that Paul began a ministry in the city of Corinth while he was on his second missionary journey. And he stayed there in Corinth for a year and a half. This is longer than he stayed at any than any other city except that of Ephesus. But let's read how this church got it got its start. Look with me at verses one through three. Acts eighteen one through three. After these things he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Paul had been in Athens, and on this particular trip he had very little success there. So he left Athens, and he went to the bustling city of Corinth. And when he got there, he ran into a guy named Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who just happened to be of the same trade that Paul was, which was that of making tents or sails. And of course, this meeting really was no accident. It was part of the providential plan of God to plant a city in uh, to plant a church in the city of Corinth. And God used Aquila and Priscilla, and of course the Apostle Paul, to get this fledgling church started. Now, if there was ever a good place to be a sailmaker or a tent maker, Corinth was it, because boats were coming through this place 24-7. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but you probably have. People of the same profession tend to gravitate 
toward each other. And uh, if you're a computer programmer, you tend to kind of hang around other people who uh, are also in that same IT type of work. If you're a healthcare professional, uh, you like to talk about medical things, and so you hang around with other uh, healthcare professionals, etc. Well, Paul found some people who were of the same profession that he was, and he teamed up with them here in Corinth. But let's go on in Acts 18. Look at verse 4. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there, and he went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. This is the beginning of the new church here in Corinth. Now, verse 8 tells us that a man named Crispus was the leader of the synagogue there, but he was converted to Christianity by Paul, and he was converted with his entire household. Well, in 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul mentions a man named Sosthenes. Sosthenes was the man that replaced Crispus as the head of that synagogue, and he too was converted by Paul to Christianity. You know, they had a hard time keeping synagogue leaders in Corinth because the Apostle Paul kept leading them to Christ. And then they would come out of the synagogue and become part of the church. But let's keep reading. Notice verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have noticed many people in this city. The Lord says, I have people here. I have my elect here in this city. Isn't it amazing? God has people everywhere. I mean, it's incredible. You can just go anywhere in the world, and you'll... Come across a believer in Jesus Christ. God has people everywhere. God has witnesses even among the pagan peoples of the world. Now, I think this was a real turning point for Paul in regard to his missionary efforts in this particular city. I believe that from this point on, Paul no longer then looked at the sinfulness and the wickedness of this city, which was very great. 
But I think from this point on, Paul began to see this as a place where God wanted to do a great work. A great work. And you know, we need to have that same kind of perspective that Paul had when he looked at his community. Rather than looking around and seeing all the problems and all the evil of our society, we really should be looking at this as a place where God wants to do a great work in the hearts and lives of people. God has people. Now look at verse 18 of chapter 18. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were, look at this, Priscilla and Aquila. They're they're now accompanying Paul. He had discipled them, and now he said, I'm moving out, and I'm going to take them with me. They are very fruitful to the ministry. Look at verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them. What did he do? He left these tent makers, these sail makers there, and he said, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. And they began to disciple people and to witness to people, and they began then to build a nucleus for the church at Ephesus. And I think that's important. Why? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 19. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Hmm. I wonder where in the world these disciples came from. Well, we just read that Aquila and Priscilla were left there by Paul. Priscilla and Aquila had led some people to Christ, and now there's a nucleus of a new church there in Ephesus. And if you read in this preceding chapter that they found a man named Apollos, who was a great orator and a very brilliant man, but he only knew the teaching of the Old Testament. This was the problem. He was baptized originally by John, and they won him to Jesus Christ and discipled him. But he was a greatly gifted man. But Aquila and Priscilla helped to clarify for him the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Dispensation and the New Covenant. And now we see Apollos is at Corinth and Paul is at Ephesus. Paul had been there in Corinth in about 52 A.D., and now three years have passed. It's now about 55 A.D., and he receives a letter from Corinth. Now, this is a lost letter. We don't have it. We, do not, we don't know what happened to this letter, but of course we would have to say that God did not intend for us to have this letter, or it would have been supernaturally preserved by God. But this letter says, in essence, Apollos is here 
in the church at Corinth. And he's telling people about Jesus Christ. And the church is growing, but we have some problems in the church. And we want some answers. So Paul, because we believe in you and your apostolic authority, will you help answer these questions? Will you help us deal with these problems in the church? And so now we see Paul answering this long lost letter here in 1 Corinthians. That's what 1 Corinthians is. It's an answer to the lost letter. So turn with me now to 1 Corinthians again and turn to chapter 5 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 5 and look at verse 9. First Corinthians five nine. Here is his reference to the lost letter. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And then he goes ahead and he talks about that association. So he's he's referring to this lost letter here that uh, they had sent to him. Someone might say, "Well, man, I wish." I sure wish we could find that lost letter. No, I don't think we need that letter. We don't need that letter because if we needed that letter, God would have preserved it for us. Evidently, it was not an inspired letter. It was not intended to be part of Scripture, part of the New Testament, or God would have made sure it was supernaturally preserved and was not lost. But it was a letter asking some very pointed questions. And evidently, God did not desire this letter to be kept, or He would have preserved it, as He has with the rest of Scripture. But here is the framework for 1 Corinthians. All of the issues now that Paul is answering one by one were part of what was in that first letter. What kind of world did these Corinthians live in? What was it about the culture surrounding them that gave them such a great challenge to holy living and the sanctified life that God called them to? Why was it so hard for them? In the words of Ray Stedman, Corinth was a city of wealth and culture seated at the crossroads of the Roman Empire where all the trade and commerce of the empire passed through. It was a city of beauty, a resort city, located in a very beautiful area, but it was also a city of prostitution and passion. It was devoted to trade and commerce, but also to the worship of the goddess of sex. On the little hill that rises behind the ancient city, there was a temple to Aphrodite. And every evening, the priests and priestesses, male and female prostitutes, would come down from the temple into the streets to ply their trade. The people of the Corinthian church came out of this culture. Many of them came out of very sinful lifestyles. And because the population was so transient, many people would pass through Corinth on their journeys, and after uh, short stays, they were tempted to have some fun in Corinth and to enjoy the illicit pleasures 
offered at the temple. The work that Paul and the other believers did in Corinth was a very difficult work because of the wickedness of this city. And you can imagine some of this worldliness then began to creep into the church. It began to affect the church in a negative way. One commentator points out that Corinth was located right where you would naturally put a city. It was not naturally a seaport, but it became a very prominent seaport because of its location. Anything that would move from north to south, or from south to north, or from east to west, or from west to east, had to go through Corinth. So you can imagine why this city was so prominent in the Roman world. If there ever was a city that was great because of its location, Corinth would be, would be that city. Anyone going from Athens to Sparta or to another important city in Greece had to go through Corinth. You know, perhaps you've heard the saying that if you stand at the base of the Washington Monument long enough that you would have an opportunity to see every person in the United States. I don't know if you've heard that say. Eventually they say, by the way, who, who are they? But anyway, eventually they say everybody, almost without exception, will make their way to the Washington Monument. I doubt, of course, that is completely true. But it stresses the fact that nearly everyone in the ancient world eventually passed through Corinth. And if you wanted to meet everybody who was in the business world in the ancient uh, times, you could go to Corinth and you could just stand there on that little isthmus, four miles wide and ten miles long, and you would have all these business connections all over the world because all these business people traveled through there. In the days of Paul, Corinth had a population of about 100,000 people. It was an international city. Jews lived there. Greeks lived there. Romans lived there. Phoenicians lived there. Orientals lived there. It was a melting pot, and it came into existence almost overnight. Ancient Corinth was a prominent city-state in the southern Greek province of Achaia, centuries before the time of Christ. It even eclipsed Athens in prominence. But the Roman military had attacked it and destroyed major sections of the city in 146 B.C., it remained a relatively small, insignificant town until Julius Caesar rebuilt it as a Roman colony in 44 B.C. And by the time Paul got there, the population of Corinth was around 80,000 with another 20,000 in the rural areas surrounding it. Corinth could rightly be called the sin city of Greece. It is called in history the vanity fair of the ancient worlds. In fact, in ancient plays, 
Anytime a Corinthian would be pictured, he would be someone always who was drunk, someone who would be vile or corrupt, someone who would use filthy language, someone who would be immoral. The word Corinthian became a synonym for immorality and debauchery. And over time, the city's very name gave rise to many words in the Greek language that were used to express someone living a life of luxury and licentiousness. To be called a Corinthian meant that you lived a very debauched lifestyle. So you can see why, as Paul addresses these believers here, that he calls them saints. He calls them saints, reminding them they're to be set apart from the world. They're to be set apart unto holy living, just as all Christians are in any setting, including Parker, Colorado, in 2017. Well, let's read those first three verses again. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're just going to touch on this tonight, and we'll come back of course, next time. But I want you to notice just a couple of things about this introduction. In some ways, this letter is different from all the other letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. Most of them began with a rather lengthy doctrinal section in which there was the teaching of great doctrinal truth and then it would close with a practical section that where he applies his doctrinal teaching. That's usually what Paul's uh, letters, how they were structured. But in this letter, right from the very beginning, he plunges right into the problems of the church, and he intersperses a kind of practicality of doctrine with revelations of truth throughout this letter. Of course, Again, it's because it's in response to this lost letter. And so he immediately gets right down to answering the questions. Secondly, I want you to notice that even in this opening greeting, his concern for the church in its various problems is very clearly reflected. Paul had a pastor's heart. He deeply loved these people and he deeply cared for their well-being. So it begins with an emphasis on these believers, their well-being, but also on the authority of his apostleship. And this is necessary because as we find out later in 2 Corinthians, there were certain individuals in Corinth who were challenging his apostleship, his authority. And that was likely because Paul, as you know, was not part of the original 12 disciples. 
And so his apostleship had been called into question. Some were wondering if maybe he might even be a false apostle. And so Paul has to defend his apostleship in this letter. He does it much more in 2 Corinthians than he does in 1 Corinthians. But we see some of that even here in 1 Corinthians. Thirdly, we need to understand right from the very beginning of this letter that Paul is writing this as a corrective. This is a corrective. You know, it's you have to understand the nature of a book before you can rightly interpret a book. And if you don't, for example, in the book of Acts, if you don't understand that Acts is a transitional book, you're going to miss a lot of of what it is intended to communicate. And if you don't understand that 1 Corinthians is a corrective, you're going to misinterpret many key passages in 1 Corinthians. But we see that this was a problem church. And Paul is dealing with some very serious threats to the spiritual health and well-being of these, these believers. This letter asks some very specific questions, and so Paul gives some very specific answers. And Paul is writing this letter from Ephesus about 56 or 57 A.D. A group of men had come to Corinth to visit him in Ephesus. Their names are given in the final chapter of this letter, Fortunatus, Stephanus, and Achaeus. They had brought word to Paul, evidently, of further problems in the church. And with them, they also brought a letter from this church asking the apostle to answer certain questions that they had. This letter that we now have, 1 Corinthians, is the answer to that first letter. And also, he is responding to some reports that he received from these men. And the problems that they're describing that exist in the Corinthian church. Do you remember when you were a little kid and you used to do this? Let's see if I can do this right. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door and see all the people. Did you used to do that? Anybody? Am I the only one? Well, that is what the letter to the first letter to the Corinthians is all about. This is a letter where Paul lifts the roof off the church. And we're going to see all the people in their sinful attitudes and their sinful behavior. And we're going to see exactly what to avoid in the church. He's going to be dealing with the problems of creeping worldliness and incipient carnality that threatened this particular church. And by the way, that has also destroyed literally thousands of other churches since then. Even many today. In fact, very many today. When we look at 1 Corinthians, we find solutions to problems in the church, such as church divisions. We're going to look at how to deal with division and strife. Charismatic issues like tongues speaking. We're going to spend a lot of time uh, on what Paul has to say about speaking in tongues. We find 
the solutions to how to have a healthy church fellowship, what to do and what not to do. We find the solutions to how to have the proper attitude about giving both of our money as well as ourselves and our time. Having the right heart attitude in regard to giving. We find out how to handle disputes between Christians or to sue or not to sue. Very practical issues. We find out how to really get a grip on our family relationships, those husband and wife relationships, the sexual aspects of marriage, and how to deal with raising our children. We find solutions on how to deal with tough problems like incest. This is very relevant because we're dealing with a lot of issues today that are very difficult to deal with, as this church was. Homosexuality. Sex outside of marriage, fornication. We find out what is the proper role of women in the church. And believe it or not, we're going to find out that Paul was not a male chauvinist pig, as some of the liberals have called him. Besides, it isn't Paul's words that we find here anyway. These are God's words, every one of them. And we find out that we must keep Jesus Christ as the center of our lives if we are truly going to live for Him in our day and time. And what Paul wants to do as he begins this letter is to show these new believers who are living in this cosmopolitan arena who they really are and what they really have in Jesus Christ. He's trying to get them to see that rather than conforming to their worlds, they should be impacting their worlds with the power of the gospel. And rather than being a thermometer which registers the spiritual temperature of the culture, God wants them to be thermostats that change the temperature. And God wants the same thing for us today. Well, in light of the backdrop of evil and wickedness that was descriptive of the church at Corinth, let's look at, look at Paul's words in closing tonight in chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10. Chapter 6, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. This is the kind of culture they came out of. And this culture is not really all that different from the kind of culture we live in. These things continue to characterize our world today. That's why this letter is so important. That's why we need to study it. It is so relevant to many of the same issues 
that we wrestle with today. But notice, such were past tense, some of you. That points to the fact that they're no longer part of that evil system. They are now saints, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so are we. Let's pray together. Father, we pray tonight that you will help us as we start to go through this book, that we would understand just how powerful the message is, that we would see uh, the need for the application in our day and time. Uh, As we walk through this, help us to do it carefully, help us to get it right, to rightly divide your word of truth. And Lord, we pray that each and every person would benefit greatly from this study. So Lord, be with us as we go through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.